Welcome to episode 284 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, biohacker and author of What Win Wine. Lose weight and feel great with paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Cynthia Thurlow, nurse practitioner and author of Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the 45-day program for women to lose stubborn weight, improve hormonal health, and slow aging. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and cynthiathurlow.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this show do not constitute medical advice or treatment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. So, pour yourself a mug of black coffee, a cup of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi, friends. I'm about to tell you how to get three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of premium grass-fed, grass-finished steak tips, all for free, plus $20 off. That's right. We're talking pounds of meat for free, plus $20 off. Friends, I love meat and seafood. My favorite way to get it is ButcherBox. It has been for years, and it's one of those things where I just sort of become more and more obsessed the more I use it. Especially with all the greenwashing that's going on today with meat and seafood, there's a lack of transparency, it can be hard to know what you're actually getting, and it can be expensive. ButcherBox addresses all of that. By directly partnering with farmers and fishermen, ButcherBox cuts out the middleman of the grocery store and directly delivers delicious meat and seafood straight to your door. And they have the highest standards. Their salmon, for example, is wild caught. Their beef is 100% grass fed and 100% grass finished. Their chicken is free range and organic, and it all tastes delicious. I love their chicken, love their meat, love their seafood. They have amazing scallops as well. And you can really find the collection of food that you want that works for you and your family. They have curated boxes, so you can get exactly what you want as fresh as possible because yes, meat and seafood that is immediately frozen is fresher than meat that is waiting out and never frozen. That's because it's frozen at its peak of freshness. It's funny because people kind of think it would be the opposite. Like, oh, I need never frozen meat and seafood. No, 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 no. You want frozen. You want meat and seafood that was immediately frozen and then shipped to you, which is what ButcherBox does. I eat a lot of steak at restaurants. ButcherBox's fillets are divine, way better than anything I would get at a restaurant. Their other cuts are amazing as well. With their seafood, I know I can trust them that I'm actually getting what they say because yes, there is a lot of scams in the seafood industry and their chicken also tastes amazing. It's free range and organic and tastes delicious. With ButcherBox, you don't have to worry about what's for dinner and ButcherBox has an incredible offer for our audience. You can have your choice of a weeknight meal essential for free in every order for a whole year. Just go to butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use ifpodcast to choose either three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of grass-fed, grass-finished premium steak tips plus $20 off. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use code ifpodcast to choose your free offer and get that $20 off. ButcherBox.com slash IFPodcast with code IFPodcast. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. 
One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed, but with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 284 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Cynthia Thurlow. Hi, Melanie. How are you? I'm good. How about you? Doing well, you know, doing all the things, all the mom things. We're heading into week three of the school year and feel like maybe everything's kind of, the kids are getting settled back into a routine. I have a new driver in the household with exceedingly exorbitantly expensive car insurance just to be able to allow him to drive. It's insane. He doesn't even have a car. But just because of the demographics that he falls into? Correct. We had to have a whole discussion about that. I was like, you know, it's the outliers of the population that generally are the ones that are more likely to have accidents and especially young males, which is what you are. 
You know what? It's kind of interesting that there's not more political backlash about stereotyping with insurance companies, even though it's based on data. But you know, like that could be a thing. That could be like a cancel the insurance companies. And we're fortunate. We have USAA because my father was many years ago served in the Navy during Vietnam. And I I tell my husband, I'm like, it would be way worse if we didn't have USAA. So I don't even want to complain. However, I said, I'm not stressing about this because our wonderful 17-year-old is going to pay for his own insurance. So he has a you know, a certain amount he has to pay us every month. And I feel like I'm teaching him some degree of responsibility. You should have seen the expression on his face. And we said, this is what you will owe us every month. And he was like, what? And I was like, yes. And you have a job and you have money and savings. And I know how much you have in your savings. You can totally afford this. Wow. Nice. (laughs) Sets him up for life. Exactly. I've been having an interesting experience related to something that our audience loves. I forgot. How often do you wear CGMs? Do you wear them on all the time still? No. You know, probably the first 18 months, I wore them near continuously. And during the book launch, I just found that I would get like excited when I had press to do or podcasts or media work to do. But I would just watch my cortisol go up and my blood sugar would go up. And it was like up, down, up, down all day long. And so I I didn't wear them for about mm, two to three months. And this summer I've, you know, had maybe once a month I've been wearing it. But I I think I, I definitely have a better sense now of, you know, where I need to be in terms of my macros and managing my stress. So to answer your question, there's a lot of utility, but I don't I don't wear it as much as I did two years ago. Yeah, I was similar. Like when I first started using them a year ago or a year and a half ago, I would I went months, you know, having one on all the time. And now it had been a while, but I re- actually reconnected with a friend from high school who comes here to Atlanta and she's into all of this stuff. So we decided to put one on together and make a reel and and all of that stuff. So this is the first time wearing one. And for listeners who are not familiar, a CGM is a continuous glucose monitor. It goes on your skin, super painless to put on, and it measures your interstitial fluid to continuously measure your blood glucose levels, which can be incredible to see how you react to food and fasting and exercise. And as Cynthia was talking about, adrenaline or stressful situations. But in any case, so I haven't worn one in about a year. And my blood sugar control seems to be substantially better from a year ago. And I don't know if this is what it is, but I think it might be all the M-Sculpt that I did, that I've been doing. Building muscle. Yeah. that I mean, it, it makes sense, you know, insulin sensitivity. I just think we know that insulin resistance likely starts at the muscle and our muscles are a bank basically for glucose. And like really the only like big thing I've changed in the past year is probably doing, I've been doing so much M-Sculpt, which is muscle stimulation that literally builds muscle. And so I think I've built a lot of muscle. And just looking at my levels, my peaks are much lower than they were before. And this is eating massive amounts of carbs. And then during the day, just the average is probably like five or six or seven points lower. So yeah, it could be other things as well, but it's kind of cool to see. It's motivating. And I think it's also important just to, you know, from the perspective of checking in with yourself to see, you know, how you're doing. I'll I'll give an example. So last night we had dinner at a neighbor's house. They know that I don't drink alcohol. So they came up with a mocktail. 
I literally, when she started telling me what was in the mocktail, I was like, oh Lord, I can't like politely not. Was it like all sugar? Yes. It was pineapple juice. And she was like agave syrup. And I literally like my husband like kicked me under the table. (laughs) And so I just had to sip it. And the whole time I was like, Lord, I'm just going to have to, you know, make sure that I go to the gym tomorrow and lift heavy things. But yeah, it was, it was humorous to just imagine like in my mind, understanding like, I'm just going to just eat protein tonight. I'm going to politely sip this drink. I'm going to dump it when no one's looking, but it was so thoughtful. I want to be very clear, but I don't normally consume like sugary drinks ever. That's just not really my thing. But in terms of insulin sensitivity, it's one of those things like in my head, I was like, okay, what could I do after we leave here? I'm like, okay, I can walk the dogs. Like we would do that anyway. All the things, okay, tomorrow I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to fast a little longer. I'm going to lift heavy things. Like in my mind, I was already knowing the things I needed to do to help dispose of the said sugary beverage that I consumed. That's so funny. Yeah. So out of curiosity, so when you're in situations like that at dinners where somebody has made something for you, what are your like lines or rules? Like how often do you have the sip or versus just saying no, thank you. Well, I felt obligated to consume some of this because she specifically made sure to have a mocktail. And so I, I had actually brought a bottle of low sugar kombucha with me and I was like, oh, I'll just have this over ice. This will be fine. I would say that something like that, knowing that I'm very physically active, very insulin sensitive, I'm like one half cup serving of that is not going to derail all the the good things that I do. But it definitely makes me very cognizant of just how, I don't want to use the, any negative word or terminology, just how happy I am with my current lifestyle and how I eat food and consume beverages. And, and I just don't realize how unusual sometimes my habits may be to other people. They were incredibly accommodating. Like they know I'm gluten-free and I'm dairy-free. And so they had this lovely charcuterie platter that was out that I was trying to eat as much meat as I could while I was sipping on said very sugary beverage. But I would say that there are some deal breakers. Like for me, I just don't do well with dairy. So if I went to someone's house and they had, you know, a very dairy heavy dessert or were trying to encourage, I would just say politely say, you know, I actually just don't do well with dairy. And I think most people don't have a problem with that. I, I do find that the most triggering thing of all is when you just explain either, no, I'm not drinking or I, I don't drink alcohol. And then people don't know what to do with that. And I was like, I'm totally fine with that. Like I don't, you do what you need to do and I'll, I'd be happy with a glass of water. Like I genuinely do pretty well with, you know, what works best for my body. The interesting thing was, you know, that the guys were having some type of local pubs brew, beer brew. And the mom was saying, oh, you know, I, I don't normally have mocktails, but I didn't want you to feel left out. And I was like, no, no, I'm really good. I'm I'm not triggered by what if everyone else is drinking, that's not a problem for me. But I, I think it comes down to, first of all, I have to genuinely be hungry to eat. I don't ever eat at someone's house just out of a sense of obligation. But I also am very grateful and try to be very appreciative. And I don't want anyone to feel like the efforts they've made are not appreciated and valued to me, like seed oils. Like I, I, I genuinely... Seed oils are probably at the top of my list of things I really try to avoid as much as possible. So I'm the person that will sometimes come to someone's house and I'll make a, a wonderful salad dressing because then I have some control over what's in it. But I, I would say the other thing is if I'm at all concerned about something not meeting my needs, like desserts are easy to pass up, alcohol is easy to pass up. It's usually, you know, when you sit down and I'm, I'm sure any listeners probably have experienced this, you go to someone's house and they have a bunch of salad dressings out and most conventional salad dressings are not going to meet my needs. And so sometimes I'll just ask for olive oil and 
you know, vinegar and people generally don't have an issue with that either. I don't want to sound like I'm, I'm one of those unappreciative guests. I'm generally very easy, but I think all of us have to figure out, you know, how to navigate those social situations and not feel like you're a weirdo. Yeah. I think it's such an important topic because I just think it's something so many people struggle with. It honestly, I think it can be one of the hardest things about any dietary change or protocol that you're adhering to. And I hadn't really thought about it before, but the similarity between not drinking is really similar to like if a person's fasting, not eating. I get so many DMs about this whenever I post pictures of me at events or parties where there's obviously food. I just normally don't eat anything unless it's like a, and this is for the fasting, not for the alcohol related thing, unless it's like a dinner I'm going to where I can like order, you know, specifically what I want to order. But it took me a long time to get to the place where I am now where I, I don't know if it, if I'm still like a little bit insecure about it, but I mostly just don't care. Like I, <laughs> like I feel pretty comfortable in just saying like, no, I'm not eating right now. And I think that's important, you know, irrespective of where we are, who we are, what we're doing, just feeling comfortable with your decisions and not feeling a sense of obligation. One of the things I've really been working on the last few years is I grew up in a family with a lot of trauma. So the way that I that I kind of mentally worked through all that in my childhood and young adulthood was to be the people pleaser and to always be the good kid and the kid that never got into trouble and got good grades. And so you know, my people-pleasing tendencies, I'm, I've been actively really working on the last several years. And so sometimes I'm just okay saying, no, I appreciate that, but I'm not interested in having that and feeling very comfortable and not feeling like I have to explain myself. And I think that's a beautiful thing to get to that point. So I love that you stand your ground and, you know, advocate for what you and your lifestyle need. I'm glad you said that because that's what I have found to be the most minimal drama response. Because I, I think I used to feel the need to explain or... It's funny. I'm just thinking about now how you've helped me with other things in life where you're like, you don't have to explain. You can just say no. But I think I did used to feel the need to explain. And now I normally I just say, thank you. I'm good. Like, And normally that just that does it. So... Sometimes there'll be follow-up questions. Oh, are you not hungry or are you not eating or why? And then then you have to... Well, I think it's a sense of you just want to make people feel inclusive. Like I know if I had someone at my house and, you know, they were abstaining from eating, I would just want to make sure like, do you have options and you feel good about the options that are available? And as long as they're good, I'm like, okay, we're all adults. We're all adulting. We have to figure out what works for us. Exactly. So I will give a link for listeners if they would like to get a CGM though. Oh, which by the way, a CGM, if you wear that to a party, you will get a lot of questions. Yes, you will. So our link for it, you can get $30 off. Just go to nutrisense.io slash IF podcast. And that is good for any of the subscription programs that they have. And the subscription programs are more cost effective. So we definitely recommend going that route, especially you'll you'll probably find it's hard to do it just once because it, it lasts for two weeks. So you can do it just once, but a lot of people want to keep it on for a little bit. Very insightful. Okie dokie. Shall we jump into questions for today? Absolutely. So to start things off, we have a question from Bo. The subject is adrenal fatigue and IF. And Bo says, hello. First off, thank you both for guiding me through my first few months of IF. I started in September 19th of 2018. I don't think I could have gotten through my first couple of months without binge listening to your podcast. 
joining both of your groups on Facebook and listening to both of your books as well. And by the way, this question was written when Jen was still hosting the podcast. She says, thank you for all of the resources. Also giving up Stevia in September was probably one of the best things I've done. Thank you, Jen. I will most likely never ingest Stevia again. I would choose honey or maple any day. I have been paleo-ish, mainly gluten-free, dairy-free, whole foods approach for several years now. And even with my clean diet, a couple of years ago, I was diagnosed and treating hypothyroidism. And more recently, after starting IF, I was diagnosed with the dreaded adrenal fatigue. Even though I am treating both adrenal fatigue and hypothyroidism and doing IF 19.5 to 17.7, I'm still not losing weight. I originally lost five pounds the first couple of weeks and since then, nothing. I'm about 15 to 20 pounds away from my ideal weight and feeling my best body. Since starting my IF lifestyle, I've gone down the rabbit hole of health-related podcasts, all the usual suspects in the keto slash paleosphere, and I've heard them mention not to do IF with adrenal fatigue. What are your thoughts? My doctor, who is treating my adrenal fatigue, says to listen to my body and see how I feel with IF and my energy levels. My energy levels are always pretty wonky, sometimes stable, other days awful, but never that amazing energy and mental clarity that you both talk about all the time. I'm wondering if I should focus on healing my adrenals, then come back to IF when they heal in a few months. Do you know if IF is too stressful for adrenal fatigue? Maybe this is why I'm not losing weight. Thank you for your help. Big hugs, Bo. Well, Bo, I think you've answered your question here. First and foremost, for listeners, when we hear the term adrenal fatigue, it's really not adrenal fatigue. It's hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis dysregulation, which is a big fancy way of saying your brain, which oversees communication with glands and different organs in the body, as we are transitioning, and I don't know Bo's age, so Bo might be in perimenopause, might be in menopause, we don't know, but that's when women tend to be much more susceptible to this dysregulation. And what drives a lot of HPA dysregulation is stress and inflammation and insulin resistance. There's many, many factors that play into this. I find that our modern day lifestyles are a huge contributing issue. And so, you know, I'm grateful that you're working with a knowledgeable physician, number one. Number two, you know, even in my book, I talk a lot about adrenal and thyroid health and how important it is. And I would be the first person to say that you really have to view intermittent fasting as a form of hormesis. So that's a beneficial stress in the right amount at this right time. And Based on what you have shared here, and again, I'm not giving medical advice, I would defer to your primary care provider, internist, functional medicine person that you're, that you're seeing, but I would not be adding in more stress when your body is already overstressed, whether it's an underactive thyroid, you have insulin resistance, you know, you just went through a divorce, a hospitalization, you had a big move goodness, the pandemic hasn't helped anybody. Any of these things can, you know, really overtax the body. And from my perspective, depending on what life stage you're in, whether or not you're still menstruating, I really think you need to focus in on healing your body before you start adding in additional stressors. Another good resource for you, I interviewed Dr. Donnie Wilson earlier this year. She has a great book called Master Your Stress that you can find on Amazon, and we'll put a link to that. And I did a great podcast that we'll link in the show notes as well. And she talks a lot about you know, she has a very specific methodology on how she she supports her patients when they are going through this specific type of stressors, how to manage it. She's not a fan of utilizing intermittent fasting when people are still healing. And, and I would probably 
say that I would be in 100% alignment on that. That's not to suggest that doing 12 hours of digestive rest is a bad thing, but when you think about intermittent fasting as a form of beneficial stress, when your body's already too stressed, it's probably the time to give it a rest and then later reintroduce it when you're feeling consistent energy, sleeping well. Just the fact that you're weight loss resistant tells me that your body has some degree of inflammation and figuring out why your body is so inflamed is going to be an important piece of that puzzle. I hope that helps. Awesome. Yes. I'll just add to that. I was curious how you're going to start off or how you're going to approach the adrenal fatigue concept because it's interesting how debated it is, even in our world, just as far as, you know, does it exist? Does it not exist? Is it a real thing? I recently interviewed Ari Witten. He's kind of known for his book on red light therapy, but his newest book is called Eat for Energy. And he actually opens the book by talking about his experience with being diagnosed with adrenal fatigue and then researching it and realizing that like in the actual scientific studies and literature, it's hard to find support that it's an actual thing, like <laughs> like that your adrenals are actually fatigued or that that's actually a concept of what's going on. I was just looking up a, a quote, like he says in his book, the vast majority of studies that tested adrenal function and cortisol levels in those with chronic fatigue conditions versus normal healthy people found no differences whatsoever in adrenal function or cortisol levels. So, but the larger picture that he goes to from that is that people get into these states of fatigue and overstress, and he brings it down to basically the mitochondria not being able to adequately deal with all the stressors that we're exposed to. And like Cynthia was saying, intermittent fasting is a hormetic stress, but of course, based on your entire stress bucket, it may or may not be too much for you. And I think it's interesting. We talked about this recently when we were talking about some of Dr. Sarah Ballantyne's work. We can put a link in the show notes to that episode, but we were looking at some studies on intermittent fasting and how it affected stress biomarkers. And in those studies, they actually found that it was contrary to what they thought they were going to find, but they actually found that intermittent fasting, at least in the setup of those studies, it overall encouraged parasympathetic tone, which is actually the, the opposite of the overly stressed state. Hi friends, I'm about to tell you how to get 15% off my favorite blue light blocking glasses ever. So I am often asked, what are my favorite quote, biohacking products, and something I truly, honestly cannot imagine my life without are blue light blocking glasses. So in today's modern environment, we are massively overexposed to blue light. It's a stimulating type of light, which can lead to stress, anxiety, headaches, and in particular, sleep issues. Blue light actually stops our bodies from producing melatonin, which is our sleep hormone. So our exposure to blue light can completely disrupt our circadian rhythm, make it hard to fall asleep, make it hard to stay asleep, and so much more. Friends, I identify as an insomniac. I would not be able to sleep without my blue light blocking glasses. I also stay up late working and wearing blue light blocking glasses at night has made it so I can do that and still fall asleep. My absolute favorite blue light blocking glasses on the market are Bon Charge, formerly known as Blue Blocks. 
Bond Charge makes an array of blue light blocking glasses in all different designs so you can truly find something that fits your style and reap all of the benefits of blue light blocking. They have their clear computer glasses. You can wear those during the day, especially if you're looking at screens all day to help with anxiety, headaches, and stress. They have their light sensitivity glasses. Those are tinged with a special yellow color, scientifically proven to boost mood, and they block even more blue light. Those are great for the day or evening. And then they have their blue light blocking glasses for sleep. Those are the ones that I put on at night while working before bed. Oh my goodness, friends. It's something you truly have to experience. You put on these glasses and it's like you just tell your brain, okay, it's time to go to sleep soon. They also have amazing blackout sleep masks. Those block 100% of light with zero eye pressure. I wear this every single night and I don't know how I would sleep without it. And you can get 15% off site-wide. Just go to bondcharge.com and use the coupon code IFPODCAST to save 15%. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E.com with the coupon code IFPODCAST to save 15%. All right, now back to the show. All of that to say, because I think I've said a lot of stuff, I think it's very individual. So basically for some people and how you're doing intermittent fasting, it may be too stressful with your life situations and your quote, adrenal fatigue, depending on what that actually is. Or for some people, it may be that it fits in well with their life and it actually alleviates some of their stress and helps their quote, adrenal fatigue. I think it's just really, really individual. So I think you have to do a more comprehensive picture of how you are reacting to it, which is actually basic, which is what her doctor told her. (laughs) Exactly. Bioindividuality rules as it always goes. Hmm. Yeah. I was thinking about this actually yesterday. Why was I thinking about this? Because I was, oh, I'm prepping to interview Dr. Nayan Patel. He wrote a book about called The Glutathione Revolution, all about glutathione. So I was reading my notes on antioxidants and oxidative stress, and he has a chapter about like what type of stress does glutathione help? And I was just contemplating, like, does mental stress create free radicals and I'm on a tangent right now, but does it create does it create free radicals and, and physical things like that? Or is it that it's a taxing, stressful situation that leads to the same stressed out end goal that physical stress leads to? It's a good question. I think it could be either. And and the other thing that I would just tack in there before I forget, I at one point trained with, you know, one of the big functional medicine docs, Andrew Hyman, and he was talking to me about adrenal fatigue. In the context of, you know, people are really getting this wrong. It's really related to the hippocampus, which is this part of the brain and how sometimes the hippocampus doesn't heal from the insult or the stress that people are experiencing, which can leave them in this kind of downward spiral. And this is, I promise, relevant to what you're saying about Ari's book. But you start thinking about if most people over the age of 40 have got mitochondrial dysfunction, is it any surprise that I see prolific amounts of women north of 35, north of 40 that are just so exhausted. And I think it's a combination of modern day lifestyles and depletion of, you know, these the role of antioxidants, depletion of glutathione. I literally was looking at a, a research article this weekend talking about how the past two years, like our, our longevity here in the United States is actually getting worse and not better, but that probably isn't a surprise, but they were looking at all these like retrospectives, like what's the longevity of someone in Japan or in Korea versus the United States. It's quite significant. And so I start thinking about 
these kind of chronic insults, like little, it's like a bucket, the bucket continues to fill year after year. And then we just get to a point where our bodies are not as stress resilient. And we talk about adrenal fatigue, but really we're talking about like the accumulation of many, many years of insults to the body, whether we're cognizant of it or not, and the resultant fatigue that comes out of that. And for many people, they don't get the answers they want or deserve to get. And so I love that, you know, you are, you know, introducing so many of the listeners to, you know, different perspectives on how people navigate these changes. I will have Ari on, but not until I want to say February, I think, because we had to reschedule because he got scheduled on my birthday, which is a whole separate tangential conversation. I don't work on my birthday. That's a standing rule. Neither. No, I'm so glad you elaborated on that because I should probably share his central thesis, which is that the mitochondria basically have two roles. They have a dual role. They have the energy production role, and then they have a like a defensive stress sensing role, and they can't really do both at the same time. So if they're in the stress mode, the stress mode reacting to threats, it shuts down energy production. So yeah. I'm excited for you to to interview him. It's a really good book. Yeah, I, I'm. I mean, there's. It's definitely like I feel very grateful, as I know you do, that we get opportunities sometimes to read people's books before they are ever officially published. And as I'm looking at the voluminous amount of books I have in my study, I feel very grateful because there's always opportunities to learn something that not only can you share with listeners, but you can take a bit of that and apply it to your own lifestyle. Like I'm looking at James Nestor's book breath, which is on my, it's, it's cause it's such a bright cover. It's like stands out amongst all these other kind of muted books. Makes you realize like every book I, I read, I try to take something away to be able to share with listeners, share with my community, improve my quality of life, improve someone else's quality of life. And that's really what it's all about. I cannot agree more. And that example of that cortisol sentence from Ari's book was something that really, really stuck with me because I had never read that, you know, when that he had reviewed the literature and that the majority of it didn't find substantial differences in cortisol levels, which I actually find that really, I think it's very reassuring because I think a lot of people get a little bit stressed about being stressed. And I do think cortisol levels can be an issue. Like you were talking about how they are an issue for people, but I think it's nice to know that maybe it's not quite as intense as we think it might be. Because I think it can be very easy to get into a just like an overwhelmed stress state about our state of stress and like worried that our cortisol levels are super high. And we should address it, but we can do that without fear. And so I think just hearing that one sentence, I mean, it made me feel a lot better. Absolutely. Random thing about James, I didn't realize he wrote a book that I had like years ago. And now I want to... I don't know if I actually read it though, or if I just bought it, but now I want to see if he wants to come on to talk about this book, even though it's like one of his really old works. He wrote a book called Get High Now Without Drugs. Have you heard of this book? I have not. It's like all of the different non-drug related things that create a different state of consciousness. So like from the description, it's he says, lucid dreaming, optical and auditory illusions, controlled breathing, meditation, time compression, physical and mental exercises. I want to invite him on for this. I wonder how often authors get invited to do an interview on like one of their, this is a 2009 book. I bet you he'd be very flattered. I I found him to be delightfully down to earth given his, you know, what I perceive to be, you know, definitely one of the more well-respected science writers that's out there. Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to reach out. 
So okie dokie. Shall we go on to our next question? Absolutely. This is from Gretchen and the subject is smells. Thank you so much for your podcast. I've been listening to it nonstop and started my IF journey on Monday. My question is about smells. We are spending most of our time at home nowadays and my husband loves to cook big breakfasts and lunches. He's downstairs making something delicious for lunch and my mouth is watering from the glorious aromas. Can this cause insulin levels to spike just as artificially sweetened beverages can? I've been able to breeze through the days without hunger unless he is cooking. All right, Gretchen, thank you so much for your question. And I believe my thoughts on this answer are yes. And we've talked about this before on the show, but I think it's to the same extent as the artificial sweeteners. What I think is important to understand is I think people think with insulin release that it's just one process. So like it's released or it's not released. And once it's released, it's releasing, but there's actually two phases to insulin release. There's the cephalic phase insulin response, which basically your pancreas always has a little bit of insulin ready and waiting and it taps out. (laughs) So there's only so much there. And that's for when you smell something or when you're anticipating about to eat. So it releases a little bit of insulin, but then for the actual like insulin bolus that keeps going and is sustained, that's created then in the pancreas. And that's more when you're actually eating. I actually had, had looked at a study before, and I think we've talked about it on a prior show. Basically, yes, the smells can likely release some insulin, but it's probably not going to start that second train of insulin production, meaning you can basically like wait it out, if that makes sense. Do you have thoughts? Cynthia. I would agree with you too. I think that, you know, we don't want to navigate our lives feeling fearful that if we smell something delicious, that somehow we've broken our fast or derailed our fast. And I think it's, we have to think big context. Like when we're talking about breaking your fast, I really think it needs to come down to ingesting something as opposed to smelling something. I I think we would otherwise go through our lives, not just enjoying being present you know, being around family, being around friends, being in a work environment and being fearful we're going to smell something delicious. I think we have to think about the big picture. And so generally I I look at it as, have you ingested the food? That is more important to me than if you just smelled the food because the cephalic phase insulin response, yes, that's there, but I have to believe that our bodies, you know, it's more sophisticated than that. I mean, you will get this, you know, a small release in response to smelling something delicious, but that's really irrelevant. It's more about what habits are going to break your fast and ingesting the food will do that. Exactly. I'm trying to remember because there was definitely, uh, there was a study I had read and it was about, I think it was about people smelling chocolate or it was literally asking this exact question and what were the effects? And the answer was that, yes, it likely releases insulin, but it's just that small amount and it's something that you weighed out. I'm really glad that you drew attention to the practicality of it all. If you couldn't smell things, that would just, (laughs) that's just, no, not practical. And it's interesting because there's, and I don't mean to speak over you, uh, you know, one of the most powerful connections to memories that we have is through our olfactory system. Like if I smell carrots, I instantly am brought back to my grandparents' garden in Colorado And so our memories are so intertwined with smells and our olfactory system. I think it's really important that we not try to diminish those experiences 
I think that's just important to state that, you know, it, it's really tied in with memories. Like there are certain smells, like wonderful, delicious smells related to food that bring me back to, to happy times in my childhood or young adult, adulthood. And you don't want to diminish those. I think that's important. I could not agree more. I'm trying to remember Mark Schatzker, who I keep talking about with the end of craving and the Dorito effect. I learned in that book that we have more DNA devoted to our the nose and the mouth than any other part of the human body, which is fascinating. It's definitely something that we should be engaging in. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, it's just, it's the same thing. And I'm sure you get these questions where people are paranoid to brush their teeth or they're paranoid to, you know, take a medication that's prescribed with, for fear that it's breaking a fast. And I always say, let's think big picture, like not brushing your teeth. The ramifications of that are greater than brushing your teeth provided you're not swallowing your toothpaste, which I don't think anyone that's an adult does that. I know toddlers are notorious for that. You know, I, I just think we always have to be focused on the big picture. I think that's what's most important. I could not agree more. All right. So we can go on to our next question. I don't know how to say her name. It's U-T-E. Uta, maybe? Uta. That sounds good. She's from Germany. The subject is menopause, and Uta says, Hello, ladies. I discovered your podcast last weekend while researching a healthy lifestyle that I can maintain effortlessly. Calorie counting is so depressing, and it drives me bonkers. Thank you for all the great information and tips. Since I'm going through menopause, fun times, I wonder if there is some advice you can give. That's a very wide-open question, but... Cynthia. This is a Cynthia question. Yeah, truly. Well, I I think it's always the reframe, right? I I think we shouldn't perceive that menopause or perimenopause is a negative thing. I mean, you're going through reverse puberty, but there's so many benefits to not having to worry about getting pregnant anymore. You're not having a cycle every month. You know, your fertility is waxing and waning and then it's gone. But to me, being at a different stage in my life, I think it's really empowering And I have the bandwidth to do things I wasn't capable of doing 15 or 20 years ago. So in terms of, you know, resources, I would say I've done a lot of podcasts around perimenopause and menopause, most recently with Dr. Luann Brizendine, who is both a uh, neuropsychologist, excuse me, neuropsychiatrist trained at Harvard. I mean, she's absolutely brilliant. She wrote a book called The Upgrade. And so The Upgrade is menopause. But she said, you know, if we really reflect on the fact that a lot of the terminology around women and aging was created by men, generally male physicians and the pharmaceutical industry, you know, she does a really beautiful job of helping us reframe what's happening in our bodies. So we are no longer menstruating or we're getting close to no longer menstruating. We're, you know, not in a position where we can become pregnant without technology, but there are changes to our brain. There's changes to the way we perceive the world. There's changes to the way our body responds to certain macronutrients and exercise and sleep. And so there's lots of really wonderful books. I would say The Upgrade is definitely a favorite. I would say Dr. Lara Bryden has a really excellent book called The Hormone Report Manual. That's Dr. Lara Bryden. I've had her on the podcast Dr. Sarah Gottfried has some fantastic resources. Probably my favorite book of hers is The Hormone Cure. And then I think about researchers like Dr. Lisa Moscone, who is a Alzheimer's brain health researcher at Cornell. She wrote a book called The XX Brain that I recommend almost daily. I would say those are really great resources. And I've done podcasts with each one of them, except Dr. Moscone, because she's doing so much research. I literally harass her publicist probably once a month. 
I'm going to eventually get her on the podcast. But I think a lot of menopause is reframing things, you know, hot flashes, weight gain, inflammation, et cetera, are largely a byproduct of how well we take care of ourselves. So there's always room for improvement. And I find most women, usually within a year or two of going through menopause, their symptoms will settle down. But it's important to understand the things we need to prioritize in this time in our life. And so I think about sleep quality, stress management, anti-inflammatory nutrition, that could look different for most everyone. But I find the most inflammatory foods for most women are dairy and gluten and alcohol and sugar. Really, let me put an apostrophe times seven next to sugar. And you know, understanding that your relationship with certain types of foods are going to shift, really focusing on, you know, they call it neat, but the exercise we do outside of formal exercise is important, you know, walking, just being active, not sitting on your rear end all day long, and then lifting weights. And, you know, I see so many women that I'm inspired by on social media. You know, there's, there's the good and the bad with social media, but there are definitely average everyday women that I see on social media that are just killing it in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond, like doing amazing things. So it's a time of tremendous creativity. It's a time to really reflect on your life and you know your contributions. And so, Ute, I, I hope that those resources are helpful. We'll make sure that we link those podcasts and those books in the show notes so that will be available to you as well. Melanie, do you have anything that you'd like to add? I know that you're not in this, this stage of life, but I'm sure you probably, you know, in interviewing so many people, you probably have some suggestions as well. Resources wise, that was very comprehensive and amazing. I'm actually just personally, I'm very curious what my experience will be when I go through menopause, because I feel like when I had my period of heavy metal toxicity, like to the extreme mercury toxicity that I exhibited, it was like all the symptoms that I see listed as menopausal symptoms, just because of the, I guess, the hormonal dysregulation from that. I've been very curious when I go through menopause, if it will be, I, I remember when I was in that, I was like, when I go through menopause, it's going to be a breeze once I, because <laughs> if I can get through this, but I would get all of that, like hot flashes and fluctuations and insomnia and create like just so many, all of the, all of the things that was not, so that's not very helpful. <laughs> it's just my experience. But I think the the better you take care of yourself in perimenopause, so from 35 up, the better you take care of your nutrition and your sleep and your stress management and doing the right kinds of exercise, the easier that transition will be. I think for, I would say for most people, it's bumpy because they still want to act and behave like they did at 20 and you can't. And that's not a bad thing. Like I don't want to eat the way I did when I was 20. I don't want to live the way I did when I was 20. And so once I kind of understood I had to eliminate some foods, focus on other areas, really prioritize sleep, which I affectionately call an art form because truly it is. Melanie, at some point, I'll have to tell you about my new sleep device that I'm using that you'll probably laugh about, but we'll talk more about it. Do I know what it is? Probably not because I haven't talked a lot about it on social media, but I have something called Somnox. So S-O-M-N-O-X. It looks like a stuffed bean, like it's the shape of a bean or like a mitochondria. That's probably a better, more apt description. And so it it kind of, you you hug it while you're starting to fall asleep. And so I set mine for 30 minutes and it actually will adjust to your breathing pattern. And what it's doing is stimulating the autonomic nervous system, parasympathetic, and I've doubled my deep sleep. Is it a similar concept to the Apollo Neuro? where it's using the vibrations 
Yeah. So it's different. So that the, it's different than the Apollo Neuro, which obviously I love and love, love, love that. And that's certainly very helpful for, for stress reduction. But for me, I've just been using it before I go to sleep. And my husband is like, oh my God, what's next for you? Like you sleep with a sleep mask, you've got your blue blockers on in bed, you're, you've got all these things that you do and you sleep with your aura ring. But it's really, it's honest to goodness. It's doubled my sleep. And let me be clear, they gifted this to me. I was not even aware of it. They gifted it to me. And, and this is my objective opinion. I don't have an affiliate account with them. I mean, I don't get anything for talking about it. Just really have been impressed with the technology. And then it turns off. So it's not, you know, it's not exposing me to anything that's negative. But yeah, I now sleep with what looks like a little mitochondria tucked up against my chest. Can you connect me to them? I want to try this. I'm surprised they haven't reached out to me. That's right up my alley. I know. It, it's completely random that they reached out because sometimes, I'm sure this happens to you too. You People reach out to you randomly and sometimes I'm just very polite and I'd say, I don't really think I would use that. I don't want to waste your time or you know your resources sending me something that I don't think I would use or support. But they, I kind of looked at it and I was like, oh, it can't hurt. And my husband was like, what next? I was like, I don't know. I just know that's doubling my deep sleep. And that for me as a middle-aged woman is pretty incredible. What was it called again? Somnox? It's Somnox, S-O-M-N-O-X. And I think it's a German-based company. That is so cool. That's very cool. Except my husband's now embarrassed. He's like, what is that thing? I'm like, it's my little Somnox. Oh my goodness. What color is it? It's blue. It's a delightful, pleasing blue. It's blue, like dark blue and light blue. You hug it basically. Yeah, but it's not like it's it's designed because it's curved. So it's designed to just fit in to your chest as you sleep. And so I turn on my side and, you know, I do like 30 minutes and it acclimates to my breathing and I just fall blissfully asleep. It's amazing. Like I, there's no, nothing else that's changed. I need this. Okay. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> wow. Okay. To-do list. One other question. I don't even know if I should ask it because it's a big question, but with the menopause stuff, do you find people benefit from HRT? I do. I think people... So the Women's Health Initiative came out in 2002. So right as I was finishing up my NP program and the, the research that was done and the points that were drawn from the research, there's a lot to unpack here. I did a great podcast with Dr. Avram Blumming and Carol Tavris talking about why estrogen matters. That's their book, but it, it basically ex explains what was flawed about this study. And I think it's really important that, that I just state an entire generation of clinicians and an entire generation of women have been harmed by the the way that this this research was shared. And so we're just now getting to a point where I think most, if not all, clinicians are, are talking openly about the fact that there is benefit from replacing hormones that, that our bodies have naturally stopped producing. And so as an overall like general statement, I do think women benefit from bioidentical hormone replacement. I do. I myself take compounded, good Lord, compounded progesterone, a compounded T4, T3. I have testosterone. I also have estrogen. I've got it all. And I really do think for me personally that they help with sleep. They help with inter, kind of synergistically, each one of them is helping me with different aspects of navigating these years. But the, the thing that I get most concerned about and, and anyone that's listening that's 35 and up, I worry the most about cognitive function because 
Alzheimer's and dementia, they don't start in your 70s or your 60s. The groundwork is laid many years before. And this is important. 30s, 40s, 50s, how well we take care of ourselves sets us up for developing disorders of cognition. And for me, I'm most concerned about brain health. And then secondarily to that, bone and and heart health, of course. And then, you know, beyond that, just wanting to be able to navigate you know, every stage of life that I'm in, I want to be able to enjoy my life and not feel like I I can't be a hundred percent. So getting back to your original question, I do, I think it's all about finding practitioners that are not only capable, but current and open-minded to help you find the combination of medications that are best for you. Like I've now gotten to a point that anything that's made conventionally just has not worked well for me. Now we just finally stopped Synthroid and Cytomel. Now I'm on compounded T4 and T3. And my functional medicine doc told me I have the most quote unquote curious thyroid panel he's ever seen. With that being said, you know, everyone that's listening, I have women who are petrified of hormones. I have women who are open-minded to hormones I think it's just important to have those conversations, like whether it's with your GYN or your internist or your girlfriend, just understand there are options. You don't have to suffer. I'm really, really happy to hear you say that. That was my understanding of that, of the Women's Health Initiative, that it, because basically the takeaway was they said it encouraged, was it breast cancer? It was not done correctly and interpreted correctly and created a... um potentially, yeah, well, everything that you said, <laughs> misled. And it's unfortunate because the samples, the the study participants were older. They weren't, you know, 49, 50, 52. They were in their 60s. Many of them had been smokers. They had high blood pressure. They were diabetic. They were obese. They weren't a healthy population to start with. And they used Premarin and they used progestin, which is, which is a synthetic form of progesterone. And it's it's interesting. Everyone knows that you and I both love Huberman and Dr. Peter Atia, and they had a really interesting discussion. Peter Atia was a guest on Huberman Lab fairly recently, and about an hour in to the podcast interview, Peter Atia effectively stated that this was one of the greatest disasters he's ever witnessed as a clinician. That it has such profound implication and impact. I look at my mother's generation. My mom is 76 and has terrible osteoporosis. And we're starting to see some degree of cognitive changes. And she, you know, it's unfortunate because she thought, oh, if I'm using vaginal estrogen, that's going to protect me. And I said, it doesn't protect your bones, maybe your vagina, which I mean, let's be honest, that's an important part of being a woman. But, you know, there was just not good information given to these women. They were not fully informed. And so I think we just have a a whole generation of women and clinicians that are fearful about prescribing hormones. And I, I think it's, I almost get a question about this every single day on social media, which tells me that we need to continue talking about it. It's important for people to know that working with a talented, competent clinician if you're in a situation where you need hormonal therapies, that there are people out there that can 
help you through that. Hi friends. I'm about to tell you how to get 10% off my new magnesium supplement. Magnesium is such a crucial mineral in the body. It's involved in over 600 enzymatic processes. Basically everything that you do requires magnesium, including creating energy from your food, turning it into ATP in the mitochondria, boosting your antioxidant system. Magnesium has been shown to help with the creation of glutathione, regulating your blood sugar levels, affecting nerve health, muscle recovery, muscle contractions, supporting cardiovascular health and blood pressure, aiding sleep and relaxation, and so much more. It's estimated that up to two-thirds of Americans do not get the daily recommended levels of magnesium. And on top of that, magnesium deficiencies can often be silent because only 1% of magnesium is actually in our bloodstream. So that might not be reflective of a true magnesium deficiency. Our modern soils are depleted of magnesium. We're not getting it in our diet. That's why it can be so crucial to supplement with magnesium magnesium daily. I wanted to make the best magnesium on the market and that is what magnesium 8 is. It contains eight forms of magnesium in their most absorbable forms so you can truly boost your magnesium levels. It comes with the cofactor methylated B6 to help with absorption as well as chelated manganese because magnesium can actually displace manganese in the body. My Avalon X supplements are free of all problematic fillers including rice which is very very common in a lot of supplements including some popular magnesium supplements on the market. It's tested multiple times for purity and potency and to be free of all common allergens as well as free of heavy metals and mold. And it comes in a glass bottle to help prevent leaching of toxins into our bodies and the environment. Friends, I wanted to make the best magnesium on the market and that is what this magnesium is. You can get magnesium 8 at avalonx.us and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off your order. That code will also work on all my supplements, including my first supplement that I made, Serapeptase. You guys, love serapeptase, a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm that breaks down problematic proteins in your body and can help allergies, inflammation, wound healing, clear up your skin, clear brain fog, even reduce cholesterol and amyloid plaque. All of this is at avalonx.us. That coupon code Melanie Avalon will also get you 10% off site-wide from my amazing partner, MD Logic Health. For that, just go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. You can also get on my email list for all of the updates. That's at avalonx.us slash email list. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, I'm just thinking, I don't know if I'll be able to articulate this, but it was an effect that was very pervasive because I feel like even me, even before I was super steeped in the health and wellness sphere, and even when I was younger, when I wasn't even thinking about this type of stuff, there was a vibe surrounding HRT that it was like not a good thing to do. I just think it really, really got into culture, which is kind of a shame that it went that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we have a generation of women that are that are struggling. And, you, you know, it's not like the conversation I had with Dr. Luann Brizendine, and she's based out of California, and she's almost 70. She doesn't look it, first of all. And she's like, I have amazing bone strength. She's been on HRT for almost 20 years. And she was, and she's a tiny petite person. And she said, I have amazing bone strength and I've got very healthy bone, but I credit that to HRT. All right. Shall we answer one more question? Absolutely. This is from Sybil Ann. Subject is need help from South Africa. Hi. First of all, thanks so much for all the effort you put into the podcast. Love, love, love the podcast. 
I'm not sure how to 100% phrase my question, but what strategies do you or did you use to stick to the plan? I started out really strong. The first two weeks, I almost effortlessly fasted 18 to 20 hours daily, and then all of a sudden it became difficult. It's like I have a mental block I can't move past. Nothing significant has happened in my life, so it's not related to stress or anything. I follow all recommendations and fast totally clean. Did this ever happen to you? You wake up one day and fasting seems hard. I don't understand how I could do so well and feel so good and then a few weeks in feel different. Did this ever happen to you? Any advice or tips would be greatly appreciated. Thanks so much for taking the time to read my question. Best regards, Sybil. All right, Sybil from South Africa. Thank you so much for the question. So I do think this is a common thing that happens with people. It's not exactly the same thing, but it's sort of how like with even calorie restriction or normal diets or crash diets, people can sometimes do it really well in the beginning and then it becomes really, really hard. And the reason that happens is because it's not sustainable, whatever dietary restriction that the person is doing. And so I think with fasting a lot that this can also happen where somebody starts intermittent fasting and in the beginning, it's great. They're losing weight. They're, you know, their adrenaline's probably up. They have energy. But then if the actual eating window is not a sustainable amount, then you're going to reach a point where your body's going to give signals to you that it's not a sustainable amount. So if this is the case, I would really like where you just randomly one day, it's hard. I believe it might be because you're actually not fueling adequately in your eating window. So I would suggest one of two things, either having a longer eating window, so changing the fasting hours, or really addressing what you're eating in that eating window, making sure that you're getting adequate fuel, adequate protein, especially depending on what macros you're doing. If you're doing a mixed diet, then this wouldn't really really apply. But if you're doing you know, a low-carb diet, making sure you're getting ample fats to support your fast. If you're doing high-carb, making sure you're getting enough calories in the form of the carbs. So yes, I think it what happens, I've already said it, but it's people kind of like going on adrenaline and doing well in the beginning, but their eating choices aren't actually sustainable. So that's what I would look at. Do you have thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think... So, of course, I always come from the perspective, are you having a harder time with fasting depending on where you are in your menstrual cycle? Because it's much easier to do that when estrogen predominates in the follicular phase, which is in the beginning versus the week before your menstrual cycle. I do think when we are creating lifestyle change opportunities, we have to be really mindful of what what is sustainable. Are you too restrictive? Are you not getting enough macros in during your feeding window? Are you not sleeping well? Are you over-exercising? Is there just too much stress going on in your personal life? I think sometimes we set really not necessarily unachievable, but not sustainable goals. And so I would really encourage you to think about what is something you can do for the rest of your life versus something for just a couple weeks, because that's a really important distinction You know, for me personally, if someone said to me, I could never have dark chocolate for the rest of my life, that would not be sustainable versus if I say to myself, you know, I'm allowed to have a small piece of dark chocolate every other day and I can sustain that, then that is a sustainable goal. I'm giving a terrible example. Dark chocolate's my one vice. If people don't know that already, that's like my one vice in life. Be very hard to give that up. 
So I, I think when you're you're looking at a plan and you're creating changes, sometimes I see people doing too many things all at once, meaning they're trying to improve their sleep, they're trying to exercise, they're trying to fast, they're trying to do all the things all at once. And what they really need to do is pick one thing at a time, master that, and then add more things. And that is much more achievable and sustainable. Yeah, I could not agree more. <laughs> so hopefully that's helpful. All right. One more question we can sneak in. This comes from Cheyenne and the subject is easing into a fast. Cheyenne says, hello, I've been listening to your podcast for just a few days and love it. I've been practicing IF for about nine years. For most of those years, I had great success in practicing a 16-8 fast and have been able to maintain a healthy weight. That said, I've been slowly putting on weight for the last year or so. I'm starting to think it has to do with my age. I'm currently 41. After listening to your podcast, I thought I might try to increase my fasting to a 24 or one meal a day. It was tough. About two hours before I was to break my fast, I got really cold in my extremities and became pretty weak. When I finally broke my fast, I didn't binge, but I was extremely tired and had to go to sleep. My question is, how do I ease into a longer fast comfortably? P.S. I did have my thyroid checked, and though it's on the low side, it's still in normal range, and my doctor is a big proponent of IF. Thanks so much. This is a great question, and this goes back to something, a theme that I'm starting to talk about more openly on social media, this over, the, the, the presumption that what you have to do is fast longer and restrict more, and what it may mean, because you're in that perimenopausal age range, it can be a lot of factors that could be why you're becoming weight loss resistant. Have you lost muscle mass? You know, Melanie and I were talking earlier about the loss of insulin sensitivity with less muscle that we have. And we start to lose muscle after the age of 40. And depending on who you're talking to, it could be, you know, 3%. It's pretty significant. And it starts to just accelerate like a freight train. What's your stress management like? What's your sleep quality like? Are you exercising? Are you lifting weights? Are you having an anti-inflammatory diet? I don't like short feeding windows because you are never going to be able to hit your protein macros. I would encourage you to explore those other lifestyle pieces first. And if you decide for yourself that you're, you've got all those things ratcheted in, I would not be doing a short you know, OMAD type eating methodology. I would not be doing that every day. It's going to be very hard to pitch, hit your protein macros and you don't want to be losing insulin sensitivity and muscle mass especially as you're heading into perimenopause and menopause. Melanie, what are your thoughts? I think it's interesting because people, like you you basically just said this, but um, people so, when they have an issue with not losing weight or, you know, not feeling like their diet is working, they think the answer is automatically fast more. Like that's the answer. And I personally think there's so much benefit that can go into like looking at the food choices specifically, especially when people write in questions, I don't think she mentions at all what she's eating. When people don't mention actually what they're eating, then I feel like there's possibly the potential for a lot of the benefits that you want to experience by addressing what you're eating rather than fasting more. And so, you know, if you're not eating a whole foods-based diet, moving to a whole foods-based diet, like Cynthia said, really focusing on the protein, things like that can be huge. But then if you do want to fast more, <laughs> no reason. So you, basically she, she went from going nine years, 16, eight, jumping into a short eating window. I would suggest just slowly 
tightening it up and slowly approaching if you want to make a shorter eating window. So doing a 17-7 and then 18-6 and, and seeing how you feel going a little bit longer. There's nothing wrong with just fasting a little bit longer. You don't have to jump into a short eating window. You could just you know add an extra hour here or there. Also, little hacks that you could do like maybe fasting just a little bit longer, like adding an extra hour and really putting in some physical activity near the end of that fast, that can have a really beneficial effect for people, both for fat burning, as well as setting you up for your eating window, insulin sensitivity and things like that. So yes, I would just take a different approach than the jumping all in to the the short eating window approach. I agree. And I, I think that, and I hope that we will continue kind of investigating this triad that I'm seeing in a lot of women where the presumption is more fasting, more exercise, more food restriction is going to allow them to lose the weight they're frustrated with. Exactly. Awesome. All right. So this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go. If you would like to submit your own questions for the show, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com. Or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. You can find these show notes. I feel like we talked about so much stuff in today's episode. At IF, I always, I always feel bad for our uh, for Brianna, our show notes creator. All the links we'll be sending her way to put into the show notes. They will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 284. And then you can follow us on Instagram as well. That is IF Podcast. I am Melanie Avalon and Cynthia is Cynthia underscore Thurlow underscore. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. Anything from you, Cynthia, before we go? No, just, uh, you know, we got through a lot of questions today and I, I think I always feel very productive when we can make that happen. Same, same. All right. Well, I will talk to you next week. Sounds good. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman. Editing by Podcast Doctors. Show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner. Transcripts by Speech Docs. And original theme composed by Leland Cox and recomposed by Steve Saunders. See you next week.